Welcome to our third issue of Scout and Birdie, Roots. Roots. Yay. <laughs> um, we picked Roots because it makes us think of a billion different things, and you'll kind of notice that everyone has been sent in slightly different directions than maybe our first impressions or our messy issue, um, but it's been very, very lovely, and we're really excited to show you all of their wonderful work. We've got some stellar people. Yeah. When I think about roots, I think about like, I always tell my students to like plant their feet. I'm like, <laughs> plant your feet because they're just moving everywhere. And then I'm like, imagine you are a plant or a tree. Like what kind of plant or tree would you be? <laughs> and then they imagine. And then if they're like really well behaved, I let them say what plant or tree they would want to be. Oh, So Jen, you've been really good today. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> what do you want your, what do you, what plant or tree do you think you would be? Um, <laughs> I don't really know what kind of tree I would be. I, probably a big, like, redwood or, like, a pine tree. Mm. One of those huge ones. Um, that's what I always think about. I, I always picture myself as that kind of tree. So, yeah. I guess that, what kind of tree would you want to be? <laughs> um... I don't know. I think I would want to be like a lemon tree. They're very graceful. <laughs> They're lovely. That's so weird because like, uh, I will, <laughs> I will always say that I want to be buried under like a citrus tree. <laughs> um, <laughs> just because, um, I think I would make really great fruit. Like I just, <laughs> I, um. I had a professor who told us about these uh, oranges that he was getting from a student for a while, and this student would bring him oranges all the time, and then he kind of got addicted to the oranges. Not addicted, but, like, he was, they were the best oranges he'd ever had. And um, so then one day the oranges just stopped, <laughs> and he was, like, he, like, worked himself up into a thing, and then he was, like, I gotta ask what happened to the oranges, and the kid said that they were from his backyard and he was like yeah it's like the funniest thing like the orange tree never really uh produced much fruit until we buried our dog under it <laughs> and then ever since then I've been like hmm that's for me <laughs> Which buried is, under a citrus tree yeah I'll just be I don't know I just, I'm like oh that'll be great it's kind of lovely actually yeah <laughs> kind of somber, though, too. <laughs> well, now that I know that, Jen, I think it's time to get started with the issue. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Enjoy Roots. Okay, first up we have Ola Klimchek. Yeah, Ola is one of my friends who I used to work together with at a dog boutique. Um, <laughs> and then we just became, 
you know, real friends. Taking care of pups. <laughs> Taking care of all of the pups. Um, so yeah, we're really excited to bring you their piece, Roots. I think Polish, Dr. the Bichon, Montana Street, Bloomer's Chocolate, Joy, Growling, Learning Love, Chicago Streets, Alleys, Imagination-Filled Spaces, and Summer Bike Rides. Roots are potential energy. They are a representation where you have been energetically. I think of co-planting, of nitrogen fixers, of the microbiome of harmonious bacteria surrounding the roots of everything we ingest. Thinly veiled meditation on humanity and our expanding emotional experience reaching for satiation. I think about my personal alchemy, the processing of experience into who I am and what memories and choices for gratitude I carry with me. I think of the sensations and the love I push down into my roots, waiting like energetic water table slowly release back into the world. I think of co-planting, the silent conversation of biology and chemistry between ourselves and the people we open our lives to. Co-planting, I think is the ultimate feeling of being rooted, the kind of sitting next to someone that feels like bedrock and do at the same time. I think of rooting in a feeling of calm, eyes closed, mentally open to the orchestra of the heart, there is a difference between being rooted and keeping your head out of the clouds. Both the roots of the sesame ceiling in my living room and the roots of my curiosity and my propensity to joy are governed by gravity. A third of a century into the root of ego, of being born in my life course, is like dew that has just formed on a slate in the morning of spring, overflowing with moisture. My life goes where it may, drawn to the best approach of falling to earth constantly swimming back to my roots. Roots. Learning to love. Experiencing kissing as acknowledgement. Kissing as making love. Do roots have to be the beginning of our journey or the story of where we are today? A visual testament of your striving for life. Without seeking water and equilibrium with the world, what would life be? Onwards, expanding, breathing. All right, so up next we have Eileen Tull. Uh, Eileen Tull is like this powerhouse solo performer. She She's amazing. Um, she's all about town, and she actually directed us in uh, the election monologues, mm-hmm. which happened earlier this year on the day that we launched Scout and Birdie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, she's just a wonderful, wonderful human being and a gorgeous performer. Mm-hmm. Um and she directs uh, or curates Sappho's Salon uh, monthly in Andersonville, which is really, really lovely. All around lovely All human around being. All around great human being. <laughs> um, and her piece is called Into Blackout Yonder. I've never been a good flyer. I like to keep my feet on the ground. I much prefer traveling by train or by car. I like to see how I get from point A to point B, to watch the landscape go by in a locomotive or an automobile. And to be honest, 
I'm not 100% sure how airplanes work. Look, I'm a smart person. I've Wikipedia'd it and all of that, but I'm just not totally sold on the science of it. And you sit there in a cramped seat inside a metal tube. You roll around on the runway for a while. Then suddenly you begin to rumble into the air, sucking in your breath and white knuckle clinging onto the armrests as you ascend, just like you did when you were riding the Vortex, a roller coaster at Paramount's Kings Island, the world-famous or at least Midwest famous, amusement park in your hometown of Cincinnati. But unlike the vortex, the airplane does not ascend up and up and up, only to crash down and down and down and flip you around in North America's first corkscrew turnabout on a roller coaster, whatever that really means. No, an airplane rises up only to stay airborne. In and above the clouds. You stop seeing the ground after a while, And then, suddenly, you're there, at your destination, without ever really knowing how it happened. Chicago, to clouds, to San Francisco, to Paris, to Tampa. I love to black out. It is such a magical feeling. You can drink and drink and drink until your brain just shuts off like the power in Jurassic Park. For me, it happens suddenly. I'm a few drinks in and having fun, except for the fact that I'm only a few drinks in and I'm not feeling it yet. I need to feel it. I need to not feel everything else that I'm feeling, and I need to feel it and only it, that feeling that I felt the first time I ever put bottle to lip. It gets harder to find. It slips away from me these days, like a cloud through my fingers. Where is it? The first time I found it was in the bottom of the bottle, so that's where I look, and I look, and I look until suddenly I'm gone. And then I don't have to worry, because I've found it or it's found me, or whatever, it doesn't fucking matter. Nothing matters in the blackout. It's just a nice, warm darkness. It's like when you were a kid, and you used to be afraid of the dark, so you always slept with the lights on, but then one night you decided to be brave, and you turned off your mini mouse lamp that sat on your dresser across the room, and you have to turn around and navigate back to your bed in the darkness. And you, to your surprise, you traverse the path perfectly, like a beautiful flightless bat. And you are lying there in the darkness, with your head on your strawberry shortcake pillow, and you're snuggled underneath the green and pink quilt your grandmother bought you before she died, and you're lying there in the dark, and you realize that the dark itself isn't scary. It's still. No one can see you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to keep up with your older brothers or perform for your aunts. You can just be still in that warm darkness, in the blackout. It's not all comforting blackness and Terminator sleep mode, though, because the plane lands and you wake up Sometimes in a different bed, in a different place, with stolen things, without your purse, with a stranger, with a strange person that you know, headache, nausea, 
vomiting, heartburn, hunger, thirst, regret, anger, guilt, discomfort, but you're there at your destination. And you walk through that temporary little hallway with your rolly bag, knowing you will soon discover the puzzle pieces, time to assemble them together to complete the picture of your destructive chaos. It's an ugly picture, and it keeps getting uglier. And the puzzle keeps getting bigger and bigger until it's one of those giant thousands of pieces puzzles that Dad would do to de-stress, and you always offered to help, and he always let you try, but then it was so hard. You could never find the pieces that fit together right away, so you gave up pretty quickly because the whole point is putting the pieces together. You want the satisfaction of putting the pieces together. Otherwise, what's the point? As General Leia Organa in a Carrie Fisher costume once said, Instant gratification takes too long. And you saw that quote a long time ago when the borders on Michigan Avenue still existed, the one where birds would fly into occasionally, just like they were tourists, and nobody thought it was odd that a bird was sitting at the cafe of the borders of Michigan Avenue except for you. But then not everybody is afraid of things that fly like you are. But you saw that quote in her book, At Borders, and you laughed. A strange laugh a hollow pit in your stomach kind of laugh. I wish it wasn't that familiar to me kind of funny kind of laugh. And then there's the crashing. That's mostly why I don't like flying. Let's be real. It's the crashing. The crashing and the burning and the impact and the screaming and the oxygen masks falling and the powerlessness over my own death kind of thing. I watched Lost. They really show you that actual crash a bunch of times. It's very effective. I know it's unlikely statistically, and I'm much more likely to get attacked by a shark, but don't even get me started on how I can't venture past my knees in the ocean. Jaws. Enough said. But it's that visceral, explosive, dramatic destruction of the crash. It's such an... It's such an exciting way to die. So upsetting and awful, too. Like, I don't want to die... But if I did, that would be the way I want to go. If I could choose, maybe I would choose that. There would be so much attention. And there would be news stories and reports of my death would spread far and wide. And it would be terrible to die. But it would be... Only terrible for what? 30 seconds? A minute? Just a short little instant, and then you'd be plunged into darkness. Into the black. And everything would be still. And you wouldn't feel anything anymore. Maybe that's something to look forward to. The blue yonder slipping into the black. I'm not so good on an airplane. I like to keep my feet on the ground. But maybe I can. Maybe I can fly. Next up, we have Tyler Anthony Smith. Tyler is one of our good friends from Columbia. He's in our creative posse, I would say. (laughs) 
Um, and, and we've performed very often with Tyler. So and many he's times. A really funny uh, and witty. witty writer um, and person in general. <laughs> so please enjoy his piece, The Nicole Kidman. really good at? Well, I'm mighty fine at cutting people out of my life. Not in a vicious way. And not literally, that's for certain. I've never tossed a dead body into Lake Michigan. Anyway, my point is I remove people from my life when I think that our time is up. I get an instinctual feeling or the person that needs to vamoose does something like tell me that they didn't much care for pushing daisies and out they go like a stuffed pepper that has been in the back of your grandma's fridge since the Reagan administration. Now, how the person gets the boot all depends on the situation. Obviously, when you know a person for a substantial amount of time and you've built a connection with them, that makes it harder to off them. If I barely know the person, however, like if it's a first date that's gone abysmal, I usually just get them off and then quizzically stare at my bedroom wall until they saunter out to their lift. Get them off? bedroom? Yes. I've recently clocked onto a sad fact of my yesterdays. Let me preface this, though, by saying that I am a healthy person. I am. Nevertheless, a handful of times when I've been on a date where the guy just won't shut up, instead of telling him to hit the road when we inevitably wind up at my place to watch uh, Bring It On, I go down on him instead of saying, hey, you, you're talking through Bring It On. One time I brought this fellow home who wouldn't stop yapping about this production of Avenue Q he was rehearsing for, and so we eventually just started swapping tongues, and then I moved south. The real kicker was discovering that he had the happy and sad drama masks tattooed near the entrance of his crotch. Now, I have a few iffy tattoos myself, but none of them are about to mount a revival of Much Ado About Nothing near my cock. He recoiled immediately, covering them up, to which I replied, It's... we all... you know, it's... None of what you're telling me about yourself so far sounds healthy. Okay, look. Doctors like me. I'm a healthy person. I take a B12 vitamin every day. I walk. In fact, I run when I'm trying to catch a bus that will take me to a soft pretzel. We all have questionable faults. So, sometimes in my past, I would take one for the peen. I cut that out, and sometimes I remove people. Here's the thing. I didn't want to cut Celeste out of my life. She walked out on me. I don't know who I am anymore. The past few months, I've done nothing but express myself via my thoughts on HBO's limited series, Big Little Lies. But it was limited, so... It's done now, forever, and so I don't know who or what I am, besides a shell. If you watched the recent HBO limited series, Big Little Lies, then I'm sure you noticed Celeste's, played by Nicole Kidman, radiant hair. Yeah, that was a wig. Sorry, that possibly came across as a lot more vicious than I intended. I'm not saying that Nicole Kidman's on the regular hair is peasant-like or anything. She's Nicole Kidman. 
The minute her roots start to show, I'm sure Keith Urban sounds a dainty foghorn and heaps of Australian glitter cloud the space around her, blinding everyone nearby, and then all of a sudden it's like said roots didn't dare try making an entrance. Okay, my aim here is that now that the show is done, all I can think about is what happened to the wig after filming wrapped. Did Nicole keep it? Did Reese Witherspoon steal it so that Nicole couldn't have it? I don't think their relationship is that petty, but maybe it is. A man can dream. In the series, Celeste frequents a cool cucumber of a therapist in order to release the fears that her husband has instilled in her. He's varying shades of abusive, but he's played by Alexander Skarsgård. So you're scared of him, but you want to jump his bones at the same time, and that's a whole conundrum in itself. Fortunately, I never had to deal with these conflicting thoughts about my father. Oh, wow, okay, your father, that came out of nowhere. Well, sure, pull my finger, I'll talk about him. I cut him out of my life. It is here that I will reveal that over the past 20 or so months since I last saw my dad, I've thought about Nicole Kidman's wig, which I was just recently introduced to, just as much as him. That doesn't sound healthy. It's not. That's my point. It's gotten to the point where I can't quite remember what his voice sounds like. I do remember the feel of his face double whenever I'd kiss him as a kid. Like a Brillo pad, but on his face. I get that that doesn't sound attractive, but it was soothing. Almost as soothing as Nicole Kidman's Vicks VapoRub-like voice when she's trying her darndest to hide her Aussie accent. I doubt that my father watched Big Little Lies. And if he did, I doubt he recognized that he and Hottie Mikatsalot Skarsgård have a lot in common. My dad never crossed into the physical abuse territory like that, though. Loud words and illegal oxy were more his style. Are still his style? My style is completely different from when I last saw him. He'd roll his eyes at my pants with the embroidered flowers on them. But I'm sure he'd still foot the bill at the end of a Barnes & Noble trip. Maybe. Probably not. I don't think he likes me, since I took my mom's side in the divorce. As if it's possible to remotely be Switzerland when your parents' divorce is on the line, and you're entering your mid-twenties, neutrality has never been my strong suit. My dad doesn't know about the past 20 or so months of my life. Or at least I don't think he does. I dyed my hair at one point. I lived in another country for a wee bit. I dealt with drama masks and a few other guys. I started, went through, and ended a relationship with a woman. I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. But Tyler, didn't you have to punch your gay card like at least six times in order to write that paragraph about blowing that puppet boy? Well, yes. Yes, I sure did. I had to punch it so many times that I've earned myself a complimentary Elaine Stritch pop funko. But yes, I spent a year with a woman. Very European of me, I know. I didn't cut her out, though. We still talk. Is that healthy? Oh, shut up. Listen. In a recent Vulture interview, Darby Camp, who played Witherspoon's Little Spawn on Big Little Lies, recalled, One time she, she's talking about Nicole Kidman here, let all the kids get on her lap and she wore a wig in the show and she's like, Oh, guys, do you want to play with my wig or something? So we were all testing her wig and playing with it. My mom's just like, Put down the Nicole Kidman. Don't touch the Nicole Kidman. My dad didn't have a wig. He just had himself, and he never quite understood what to do with my sister and I. We went to McDonald's a lot. I think of him every time I fill one of those ketchup thingies. 
They're called ketchup cups. That's the technical term? Yes. Right. So, I think of him every time I fill one of those ketchup cups. But besides asking him if he wanted ketchup, I didn't know how to carry on with the English language with him. And that's a bummer, but on most days, I'm not sad that he's out of my life. That's just the nature of it, all. Expiration dates exist. For the guy in your bed who shouldn't be in your bed. For the girl you're in a relationship with, even though whenever you listen to the Funny Girl Overture, you're so flaming that you could cook up omelets for the entirety of the National Guard. For Nicole Kidman's wig, which, you know, it was time to put it down. It was time to put down the Nicole Kidman. The show was perfect. If it would have gone on for any longer, it would have been like that spoiled stuffed pepper. If you haven't watched it, you really should hop on it if you want to consider yourself a functioning human in today's culture. And for your father, my father, there was an expiration date for him too. He who did what he could, or what he thought he could, and who certainly didn't know what to do once I started to figure it out for myself. The end? The end. All right, next up we have Beck Willett. Beck is a director and a set designer and a writer. She basically just does everything in theater. Yeah, she's um, just like a beautiful, strong woman of the theater. And she's so, so lovely. Um, we are really thrilled to bring you her piece. Yeah, so we're excited uh, for her piece called My Hair. I imagine that when I die and am buried, my hair will keep growing, creeping through every crevice of the coffin, usurping all the tiny holes made by worms and blind creatures of below, filling all the hidden spaces like water until it explodes into a fantastical tree made of a million wisps that float in the air like careless clouds. And as my frame lets the flesh fall away, it cares not if my body was once blemished or fat or wrinkled. My bones are beautiful. My hair will find every curve and cranny of their chalky surface and cover them so that what I can't contain in life, in death, will become my comfort and protector. Okay, next up we have Fruit Tree herself, Jennifer Keel. <laughs> <laughs> um, with a piece that is topically called Gethsemane. Enjoy. I have a plant. His name is Plant. Plant was born asexual but identifies as a man, so I will be referring to him with the pronoun he. Plant is a spathophyllum, commonly referred to as a Japanese peace lily. I've wanted one for years, and not just because I'm Japanese, and my Japanese name is Sayuri, which means little lily. That's just a happy coincidence. I've wanted one because Japanese peace lilies are one of the best plants for air purification. They detoxify the air, cleansing it of trichloroethylene, xylene, formaldehyde, ammonia, and benzene. And if you care for them properly, they can live for up to 25 years. 
the 25th of September, 2015. I walk through Gethsemane Garden Center, named for the Garden of Gethsemane, which lies at the foot of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and is the location where Jesus is said to have prayed while his disciples slept the night before his crucifixion. This Gethsemane is located at 5739 North Clark Street, a half a mile from my home. It's a nursery, a plant nursery, if you're unfamiliar, where plants are propagated. I walk up and down the rows of flowers, trees, outdoor plants, and indoor plants. I know what I want, but I'm just walking and thinking, mostly thinking. Nurseries are great places for thinking. Perhaps it's the oxygenation, but for me, I think it's more the familiarity. My Obachan and Ojichan, my grandparents on my mother's side, owned and ran a nursery for 44 years. That's where I grew up. I grew with the plants, roaming the neat aisles of flowers and trees, lost among pine and bamboo which towered over my tiny dirty blonde head, but never really feeling lost at all. I pick up every Japanese peace lily in the nursery until I find plant. He is nuzzled in the back of the bunch, modest and clearly over-fertilized. His one bloom looks at me like an all-seeing eye, and I know. This is my plant. I carry him around carefully, like a baby. One of the workers asks me if they can wrap him up for me, and I decline, wanting him to stay by my side for a while. Mayobachan and Ojichan were born in 1932 and 1933. They grew up on the other side of the Second World War and picked oranges and grapes to pay for their voyage overseas. They grew every plant in their nursery from a seed, every single one, thousands and thousands of plants. They would wake up every day before the rising sun, shielding themselves from the rain and morning cold with thick jackets and a space heater that rattled on the cement ground beneath the large wooden building that Myojichan built alone, with his own two hands, using a style of carpentry called miyadaiku the same technique they use to make Shinto shrines and temples, where pieces of wood are elaborately interlocked, cut using a selection of hand saws. No electricity, no nails, no metal, just wood. I spend at least a half an hour picking out Plant's pot. I choose a sleek, square, black one. He's much moodier than I initially thought. Lately, I've been questioning everything, which I guess is what you're supposed to do in your early 20s, but it's everything. It's everything I love and create. I question this, this, sharing this story. I wonder, is it compulsion or ego and the millennial need for external validation? My grandparents never needed that external validation. They were comfortable adding beauty to this world in a subtle way, without recognition. They grew the plants, they built the building, and people would come and take a piece of their time and energy home, planting that beauty in their own world, and it would grow and live and flourish, ripples of good scattered all across the Golden State. Ripples of good that will live on long after they're gone. 
Gethsemane Garden Center is not quite the same as the place where I grew up. It's a Western interpretation of a similar concept. And they don't have the tray I'd like for plants. But that's okay. My grandparents closed their nursery after 44 years. They are now 84 years old. Their health is waning, but you hardly notice. There's never a complaint. Just a worsening limp and a new, thicker pair of glasses. My Ojichan watches Judge Judy in the morning, and my Obachan watches NHK at night and does water aerobics at a place called Club Sport. And they cook their breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they take care of their beautiful garden. And they go to temple. And they don't make many ripples anymore. They move quietly. Stoically. And when I think of them, I think of Japanese gardens. Of peace. Of the tortured beauty in a bonsai of woven temples, of still bodies of water with the whole of the sky reflecting back on them. As I walk through Gethsemane, I am fully aware that we're all just clinging to little pieces of home and trying to find the home within. I talk to plants a lot. He is my sounding board, my conscience. I talk to him about the meaty bits of me that I can't talk to other people about. I feed him with my breath and some water and he purifies the air and detoxifies my mind. He reminds me to clean my room when it's messy. He reminds me to breathe when I'm anxious. He reminds me to wander among the greenery to create ripples of good in this world. And he reminds me that no matter how subtle it is, everything we do has value. Hey guys, so did you know that I'm actually Plant's godmother? Yep. I asked her to be Plant's godmother. And uh, I said yes. Uh, and do you want to sing him your song? Oh yeah, this is Plant's song. At achla ve'at chamuta At achla chamuta da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
Annabelle runs a really amazing workshop in Chicago um, called Junior Varsity. Yeah, it's really awesome, and it's one of the few writing workshops in Chicago, actually. So if you are in Chicago, check it out. It's an awesome environment to, like, really collaborate with people. Yeah, definitely. Um, And we're really excited to bring you her piece, A Llama Farm Tour Guide, (laughs) Life and Times. I'm going to start by telling the story of someone else's life, as much of it as they told me, scantly and in fragments, while we toured the perimeter of a llama farm. Officially, this person was leading a group tour of said farm. Unofficially, they were putting me and the 11 other members of this tour through one of the great spiritual tests of our lives. Some members of our party were as young as seven. Probably, they will grow up to be either great saints or serial killers as a result of the experience. It was that intense. Sharon was that intense. I changed her name slightly in case Sharon, lost in a deep internet hole one day, comes across this missive, reads it, and recognizes herself. I am not worried Sharon will sue me, but I am worried this would hurt her feelings, and I don't want to hurt Sharon's feelings because Sharon was a nice person. Sharon was just bad at her job. I am bad at my job too. If anyone wants to write a short essay on how a morose barista named Shamanabelle ruined their Monday commute by salting up their coffee with real human tears, I guess this is their karmic go-ahead. Sharon hails from New York, the state, not the city. She spent the first era of her life driving a bookmobile. She was a librarian with a license. A lonely life, maybe, but one filled with purpose. No one can argue with literacy. Children are the future, and, I imagine, Sharon liked to spend her days around children. Children are sweet and friendly to grown-ups they don't know. They might make fun of strange children, but they are merciful to the off-kilter adult, if only because they haven't quite learned how to recognize one yet. At a point determined by either law or fate, Sharon had to retire from her life of bookmobiling, but she still needed a job. At a point before that point, Sharon had gone on a group tour at a llama farm in the North Carolina high country and was blessed, her words, to be able to get a job at the very same farm when she applied. Sharon did not give tours right away. No, no. She worked her way up, first doing weeding and manual labor. We, the tour group, learned this detail while we stood outside an enclosure heaped high with llama beans. A llama bean is the name for a llama poop. It does look exactly like a bean and is a deeply burnt brown color, distressingly similar to the coffee beans I professionally purvey. No offense to the cows, said Sharon, but llama beans are better fertilizer because they don't have all the methane, so they don't stink as bad. As bad being operative. The beans did stink. By the time we made it to the bean heap, Sharon had been touring us for nearly 90 minutes and we'd gone less than a quarter mile. No one had the patience necessary to inhale the incredible methane-free feces, whilst Sharon regaled us with a tale of how she once walked the property for hours looking for the bean patch while she was still new to the crew. It was not like Sharon hadn't warned us. At the top of the tour, she'd asked if we had any place to be afterwards, saying she liked to take things leisurely. Later, my friend's sister would point to this as our fatal error, hissing, she trapped us, while we death trudged up a 30-degree incline to visit a pregnant goat, Sharon at the front, for our safety. On this particular afternoon, Sharon's victims consisted of a multi-generational family, coincidentally from the place where I grew up in South Carolina, and us, a group of six women on a bachelorette weekend. 
Why do we go to a llama farm in North Carolina during a bachelorette weekend? Because we are fun and zany and too broke for Aruba. The bachelorette sister found the place online and we kept the excursion as a secret part of the itinerary. After a morning of mimosas in the hot tub, we blindfolded the bachelorette and tossed her in the back of the truck. She wanted to ride there and we are afraid road signs might ruin the surprise. We were hoping she would get a chance to pet a llama, and over the phone, the bride's sister had been told there was even a llama that could give kisses, and this prospect was objectively gross, but also irresistible to us. It's probably all too obvious, but everyone at this was white. Unfortunately, the llamas would not perform for Sharon. We stood outside their pen while she called each by name. Mojo, come see us. Harley, come see us. Come see us. But the herd ignored her utterly, eating hay and rolling about in the dirt. Sharon explained that llamas were like cats. They interacted on their own terms and weren't always into it. When we realized we weren't going to pet a llama, the bachelorette party crew was no longer into it either. There was deep sighing and suppressed giggles while Sharon toured us through the rest of the farm's attractions at a warp slow pace. I was afraid we would all lose it all at once and I felt hyper aware of how high school mean girlish it would be for the six of us to turn on poor Sharon. Sharon presented a twofold problem for me, the first being moral. I've always felt we are not allowed to dislike anyone who is not a mean person. I think it, it's a solid principle, but I was finding it nearly impossible to prefer Sharon as she slowly zapped my will to live through long-winded explanations of the llama shearing process. They tie down all four of their legs and llama fibers, 22 naturally occurring colors, and the incredible mind of the llama. The evidence for this was that the llamas knocked over a statue of St. Francis in a pasture once, and they seemed visibly distressed. Llamas are Catholic, said the still mimosa-buzzed bachelorette. Sharon considered the hypothesis and smiled. Well, they are from South America. The second problem had to do with identity. Sharon's a dyke. This is not a detail of her life she shared with us, but it was one that I, as her fellow, sensed ever so immediately. And so I felt solidarity with her and sympathy for her because Sharon is old and from New York, the state, not the city. And maybe Sharon is innately awkward and socially bizarre and obsessed with llamas. But I'm guessing growing up and living her life as herself in the place and time when she had to do it has something to do with how she got to be the way that she is now. There are moments during that bachelorette weekend in which I, the lone lesbian, felt pretty damn awkward too. Being the only one is hard, and if I was the only one every day, I might decide driving a bookmobile up and down the coast for the rest of my life was a nice alternative. I've also had insomnia lately about my decision to spend my 20s working a low-paying day job that affords me the time to be an artist, which is in quotes, because I'm less and less sure what I mean by that and more and more suspicious of any lofty connotation. I am certain of the status of my bank account, only because I lo just looked it up. In general, I rest in the knowledge it's hovering somewhere between the canned tuna salad for dinner zone and the, if you think you can afford that fancy pound tuna girl you are wrong, red area. Meeting Sharon made me wonder if I might also one day find myself blessed to be giving walking tours at a llama farm in my twilight years. But damn, Sharon, fuck. Do we have to talk about the llama beans right outside the llama bean pile for 10 minutes? When we finally got moving, one of the dads from the South Carolina family said, thank you, in a tone that made his wife give him a look and also rub his back in a conciliatory manner. I gathered she'd been the one to book the tour for their family as she whispered, I am so sorry, to her man. Not as sorry as you're gonna be.
he said to her in a tone that didn't apply abuse, but did indicate she'd be surrendering the entire DVR to him when they got home. I felt a little better when I realized the other group was cracking up. It wasn't that we were total mean girls. Sharon was also impossible. I got focused on the tidbits of her life she peppered between llama stories, and I tried to feel gratitude about how Sharon had found this place in the world. Yes, she was the worst llama tour guide ever, but who cares? It's not heart surgery, which is what I tell myself every time I make latte art that looks like half mince garlic. And she seems happy here, and where, literally, where else would Sharon have gone? After the tour, the bride-to-be asked another guide if she would take us back over to the llamas. This confused and annoyed me as I was over llamas for life and my mimosa buzz was long dead, but, and I'm not sure what gave my friend the idea that this might be the case, the llamas reacted totally differently to the other guide. If llamas are like cats, they're like cats who hate Sharon. Without her there, they were gregarious and hammy, shoving their heads through the fence while we took photos. They were like super cute aliens with their mop top hairdos and globular 360 eyes. The one who could kiss was white with long emotive lashes. He moved his head side to side in a way that was uncanny in its flirtatiousness. All of them had distinct personalities, and I took a million pictures. I could see how a person might get really into them, might fall in love, might even decide to dedicate a lot of time to learning about them and teaching other people. And maybe someday Sharon will grow on them too. Guess what? He's back. It's David Stobie. Uh, David Stobie is one of our really close friends. And if you're a regular listener uh, by issue three, you'll recognize him from his piece in our first issue, First Impressions. His piece was called Yelp. And we're really excited to bring you another poem of his called Hi-Fi and Diet Coke. I make sandwiches in a neighborhood I used to live in. I moved to the city after 18 years in a place known for its prisons and high school symphonic bands. Wicker Park is where they filmed High Fidelity starring John Cusack. And more bikes glide by than anywhere else in the city other than the lake, maybe. Their chains squealing like lobsters in a steel water-filled silver pot because it's cold and they're rusting and they never oil them. I've made the same sandwiches for three years in a neighborhood I don't live in, and one time, in December, a man couldn't eat his sandwich if he saw anything but what he asked for touch it, as if he'd vomit the Campbell's chunky Mediterranean soup all over the blue tile table that he eats at while staring at a picture of Michael Jordan going deep. I lived in a town where teenagers had sex behind radio stations or in the mall bathroom. I've done both, but left the next year when things started to look the same. Same like a rerun of Two and a Half Men or a big Italian sandwich. I ride my bike to this job to make sandwiches in a neighborhood I don't live in for its flexible hours and free Diet Coke. It's nice to hug your mother, eat the same sandwich, love the same lovers, and clean the same sheets. Love, hate your job with its grease, its garbage juice, its malted milkshakes and salami. Love, or hate it for its one step further. I ask my boss, what's new after four years? What's new after one? What's new with Michael Jordan after he peaked in 98? She asks, why haven't you left yet? All right, next up we have Anna Rose Wolf, my bestie. Um, 
This piece that she wrote uh, was the second piece ever for our solo performance class that we met each other in. Um, and I remember this being like one of my favorite ones that I heard all class. Um, because it's really, really lovely. So I'm excited that I get to share it all with you guys. Um, it's called Annie Rose. My mother has no middle name. She is the second child, one of four, three sisters and the youngest a boy. My mother was not given a middle name. My mother is not small like me. She is tall with hips that have given birth to four children and big breasts, and I lay on her like a pillow, feeling her warm body holding mine, her thick, curly brown hair pulled back into a tight, perfect ponytail. She smells clean, always. My mother cleans the house, no one else does. My mother makes dinner, no one else does. My mother worries, no one else does, but my mother does. We tease, you worry too much, you're obsessive, you can never just relax. My mother is 11 when her mom comes out as gay. She is 11 when her father moves out of their family's apartment in the old Jewish side of Milwaukee. She is 11. Her mother goes out a lot. Her big sister goes out a lot. My mother does not go out. She goes to school taking the 12 bus and transferring to the 10. She comes home taking the 10 bus and transferring to the 12. She does her homework, helps with her sisters, helps with her brothers. By the time she is a teen, she is both a sister and a mother to them. They are poor. She rides the 45 to the grocery store with $3.50 for dinner. She makes macaroni and cheese with slices of hot dogs. My mother tells me that she always knew she would have a little girl. She always knew she'd have a little girl and call her Annie Rose. Rose after her father's mother, my middle name, a name my mother wasn't given. My mother's hair is frizzy with volume and wild, beautiful curls. I have seen my mother wear her hair down twice. Once in a little picture I stole from her bedside table of her on her wedding day, and once for my sister's bat mitzvah, where I straightened it for an hour, making it as flat as a pin. My childhood home is clean. We live in an upper middle class or lower upper class area. Our house is organized. Things belong where they belong. Our house, my mother's house, is thought out. The walls are beige and the furniture brown. The bathroom is clean and the kitchen is spotless. My mother likes it, wants it, needs it that way. We yell, you're always controlling us. You're overreacting. You can never just let anyone be. My mother moves out at 18. My mother meets my father at 18. My dad says that when they met, my mom had two full outfits, a pair of jeans, a dress, sneakers, and a pair of bright red boots. He laughs that when she met his family, the first thing my father's mother did was take my mom shopping at Nordstrom's. My grandma says, get whatever you want, sweetie. My mother shops. The weekend's activities with my mom are a run to Bayshore Mall to hit up Gap, Gap Kids, Gap Body, Gap Outlet, followed by TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Nordstrom's Rack. She buys clothes, she buys shoes, she buys bags. Bags are her favorite. She is happy when she shops. She is young when she shops. She is a kid when she searches and finds and pays with her silver credit card. We lay our finds for the day out on my parents' big bed. My father isn't allowed in the room. We don't want him to see just how much we got, just how much we spent. He'd kill us if he knew. We talk about each item, how great of a deal it was, where we found it in the store, what we will wear it with. We laugh, take pictures, try them on. We cuddle up on her big bed with our new finds, and I lay on my mother like a pillow, feeling her warm body and her thick, tight ponytail. And when we're done, my mother folds her clothing up in a neat little pile and puts it away in her neat little closet. My mother never let me take the bus. My mother didn't want me cooking dinner. 
My mother never had me make my bed or do the laundry or clean the dishes. My mother cleans the house. No one else does. My mother makes dinner. No one else does. My mother worries. No one else does, but my mother does. She tells me she always knew she would have a little girl. She always knew she would have a little girl and call her Annie Rose. She says, you're not a baby, but you'll always be my baby. My mother cries when I cry. She is angry when I'm angry. She is in love when I'm in love, and she hurts when I am hurting. She says, I wish I could take all your pain away. My mother is 11 and rides the bus to school. She is 11 and cares for her siblings. She is 11 and dreams of having a baby girl. She'll call her Annie Rose. Okay, so last for the issue, we have Miranda Hain. Miranda is one of my best friends in the whole world. Um, she actually recorded this in California, um, where I know her from, because that's where I'm from as well. Um, and I'm really excited to bring you her piece, My Tree. When I doodle, I put my pen to paper with no purpose. I let my mind go and simply draw. Sometimes there will be variations, but more often than not, I draw a tree. I draw the trunk first, sturdy and strong. It's always a relatively small tree, but the trunk is wide wide enough to wrap your arms around and never really be able to touch your fingertips. In the center of the trunk, I draw a small tree hollow, just a little nook. It's where you'd expect to find a miniature nest filled with three perfect baby birds with eggshell hats chirping for their mother. In my opinion, every tree needs a hollow. I move on to the head of the tree. I enjoy the repetitive nature of doodling endless leaves. Draw a curve and loop. Draw a curve and loop. Over and over until I look down and see the leafy canopy of foliage that has sprouted beneath my pen. I remember when I used to be self-conscious of my leaves always embarrassed that I just couldn't seem to draw them right. Now, the more I draw them, the more I love them. They're so very me, sloppy and neat at the same time. I draw cracks and splits winding up and down the trunk, carving life through the bark. I imagine the trunk is a soft brown, a warm mixture of mocha and cream similar to my own skin. I create, invisible to the naked eye, a past for this tree, a story of its life. Nearly six years ago, I even began to draw a small heart carved into the side of the trunk, holding two sets of initials, a token of eternity from a young pair of lovebirds. He's tall and broad, with smooth brown hair overgrown past his ears. She's small, more than two feet shorter, with her long, frizzy curls pulled into a loose bun on her head. 
The breeze is warm, but she still leans against his side as he carves the heart into the unyielding bark with his left hand snug on the small of her back. Every tree has this heart carving, still radiating love. Last and most importantly, I draw roots that slide and weave through the tree. They're made of warmth and love and life and everything that makes this tree extraordinary. I draw the roots to look like vines curling and reaching as they spread. Some roots soar up and become branches lost in the wild leaves. Others slide down through the trunk and slip into the ground, supporting and securing the tree. They shoot out along the bottom of the page, branching in every direction they can until they cannot. I have drawn this tree over and over again for years. Thousands of doodles on thousands of pages drawn over a decade, each tree better than the last. As I age, I learn more about the woman that I am, and I've realized that I am a tree. I am a tree with a huge canopy, wild and full. My soft brown bark contains stories and carvings of my life. I am a tree with a big heart and open branches, inviting you to climb. I am a tree with roots that are filled with the indescribable feeling of true love, familial warmth an ache for kinship, an obsession for Harry Potter and Doctor Who, and a million other feelings and thoughts that make me uniquely me. I am a tree that will always be growing and changing. I'm this tree. I'm my tree. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening to our third issue, Roots. Third time's a charm. <laughs> We're living a very charmed life. Um, <laughs> always. Always. Uh, if you would like to see more of Scout and Birdie, just check us out at our website, scoutandbirdie.com. You can see the digital issue there, and make sure you check out David Gordeski's amazing comic. If you want to stay up to date with what's going on with Scout and Birdie, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Yeah. Um, we'll see you next month with our issue, Be Kind, Rewind. Have a lovely day. Bye.